Shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our third broadcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss to discuss our current topic with new perspectives based on cognitive functioning. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most basic social problems. Disabilities, poverty, violence, crime, and all of those society ills we rail against, but with little regard to consequence and efficacy. Today's broad podcast episode is about the brain's perception of pain. From a cognitive function perspective, as a reminder, our podcast for the special education topic will be our fourth podcast next Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific Coast time. We have touched briefly in our previous podcast, Emotional Processing and Cognitive Functioning in regards to autism. Today we will discuss the subtle consequence of the brain's perception of processing data and how it may be viewed in individuals who may experience overwhelming feelings. This podcast will be somewhat is repetitive in cognitive functioning that we've discussed in previous podcasts. But moving forward, I feel is important to the basics of understanding how cognitive functioning is important to those topics moving forward. Often when we feel, we experience feelings of emotions that are unexpected and intense our functioning is likely to decrease until we recover. And as we discussed in our previous podcast, individuals who may face additional challenges, additional cognitive challenges, when faced with unorganized emotional data. The term data is important in the belief that our processing involves data from many points of data from many points of sensory input. This will become more important when understanding those issues faced with individuals who have difficulty filtering and processing data that most of us may have automatically processed. This will become evident as we discuss some of the pathways in which emotional processing becomes a source of issue. Let's start with understanding and discussing, assuming that the brain is a finite space of which there is a certain amount of area and space for which processing occurs. It is not within the scope of our generalization to think of each individual and determine their processing abilities, but rather in a broad spectrum of understanding what a finite space means across the board of difficulties. So when we discuss a finite amount of space for processing, we understand this as an individual's capacity to process the data that they receive. So the two parts is the space in which they process and the amount of data that they, the input that they take in and the kind of data. So some people are able to filter out more kinds of data or automatically process more kinds of data than others. 
but rather than discriminate in those sources, we are here today to think of those issues where an individual is feeling when overwhelmed with too much data that there is an increase in the physiological response that is associated with stress and anxiety. This is a complicated and highly theorized area of cognitive functioning, but it has the pathways in the physiological have been worked out with animals in many areas of response and fear and anxiety and the physical response in which that occurs. For our circumstance and for humans, we want to keep this to the understanding of how we decide what is pain, what that reflects, and then what, do, what problem solving can we do to uh, work through it. So we are going to, we have made the assumption that the processing area is a finite space. So our, as we move forward, our next is, idea is to understand what part of that pathway is automatic and what involves thinking and problem solving. So to cap off, the first pathway involves thinking and problem solving. Functioning is constrained by the speed at which an individual can process information. All information, whether verbal or nonverbal, will be impacted by the speed. The second pathway is thought to be unconstrained by the thinking speed, but automatically uh, recorded and processed. So, for example, we were discussing the effects of data on someone who is on the autistic spectrum. In this regard, someone who has difficulty on the spectrum may have challenges with unfiltered light, sound, or touch, or even data that has to do with emotions. This result is that at some point, they're working with more data than someone who is filtering, or the data is going through an automatic processing response. So rather, as we might look at it when they have done an assessment, we would see that their processing speed is slower for the task that is asked of them, such as a math problem or uh, a problem on an assessment test. But in fact, we may also see the other side that they are processing actually more data and are having difficulty processing the task at hand because their brain is already having maybe twice or three times the data as someone who is able to do the task asked of them. They are not only trying to, their brain, their mind is already trying to process the lights, the sound that is not automatically uh, recorded, but in addition, manually having to resolve additional information that we either ignore, people who are able to respond to the requested task, able to ignore, or it is automatically filed. Again, we go back to the finite space. So if we review a person who has two individuals, we might not think of one individual actually having slower process, but is distracted by different amounts of information that is not associated with the request and the task associated with how fast they are thinking or processing. And this gets us back to the brain processing of emotional data. Because we are often asked 
not only if we are a student, but an individual, we will have demands on us that we consider normal to daily function. If we are trying to process in association of those normal tasks, things that we consider automatically processed, we would be looking at such things as light, sound, that may also be a form of data that is competing with the asked task of that moment or the assigned task of that moment. So for a parent who has a child that is not filtering or is not assigning data that we normally consider automatic, that data is now part of the processing that that child or student is trying to complete. Then we would ask additional demands, example, homework, on top of the added input that that child has received is still not being processed or is being processed at the same speed, but is three times to four times the amount of someone who is already filtered, ignored, or processed automatically. And thus the difference may not necessarily be processing speed, but the data that the student is trying to process. This is across all humans, only in degrees of brain function would differences be noticed. So our institutional demands require that an attentive task is required to gain elevated position or to gain a function. And when that is not met, then there are assumptions in place. To the student, he may still be processing at the speed that is similar to the child who has met the expectation, but is disorganized information and is slower only in that the processing is working on a greater data input that is not as organized because it is, has not been filtered. And we will get to how that filtering is and some of the other physical aspects of the physiological reaction so that we may move forward to the end of this program on the solutions, on generalized cognitive functioning and how we may look at problem solving. But leading up to that, we are wading through some of the intricate details of what cognitive functioning has been looked at and some of the generalized ideas in regards to that in research and in assumptions. Brain processing of emotional data and the size of data it takes up can create processing issues that can be associated with disorders. For example, again, uh, it is thought that autism at, can create issues with data processing. But before we move on to the technical details of brain functioning on, I would just like to get back with one of the important aspects of our current knowledge and association of human development in action. Research by Mary Young, as an example, is focused on looking at research that closing the gap between what we know and what we do. And that is what we are essentially looking at in our talk revolution in cognitive functioning, closing the gap between what we know and what we do. And we hope that we have closed some of those gaps in this podcast so that we can move forward 
and related to problem solving some of those social issues that we had put forward at the beginning of the show. In general, areas across cultural or cognitive functioning has in the past been viewed through the lens of social environment. And there is no doubt through the research that I just mentioned that social uh, environment, gene environment interactions are all and the, re the absolute association of their effect on neural pathways in the brain are a tremendous part of increasing and supporting cognitive function or depressing their abilities. For example, in this research that I just mentioned, they indicate how social backgrounds either help support cognitive functioning or become a depression of cognitive functioning. And what we have done today is that we will continue to look, put forward that despite every class and every situation, there is still a foundation on which we can build every child's function on every disability we can build a foundation from there. The support can be generated from these additional research and from this additional areas of concern. So from our point of view, one needs a foundation to be built on. And from that, this is what we are addressing in these podcasts. At any time, if you have a question, uh, feel free to ask. And I will try to answer as quickly as I can and move on. And I do not mind the interruption if there is some confusion in regards to any of the cognitive functioning areas that we are describing and the processes. This is just a quick review over very important areas that moving forward is the basis for our solutions. So I have picked out some of the issues that are associated in my mind and in theory, the areas that will best be suited for the general use to solve emotional issues and, cog and improve cognitive functioning. One of the main importance, and we discussed not only the processing, but have given rise to the idea that when we do an assessment on the child, whether it's ADHD, bipolar, or other barriers that we feel may be being inhibited of moving forward with cognitive functioning, we may not be looking, unless there is direct and known brain trauma, most brains, I believe we can assume, are functioning at the same speed, a child is functioning all quadrants at the same speed. In many assessments, one quadrant, a uh, slower, may seem slower, or another may seem higher. And there is genetic abilities, but in general, when we are looking at processing speed, we're looking at low processing speed and high processing speed. We can see the on an assessment, generally speaking, those connections between those quadrants that have been tested, memory, processing, uh, and other areas that, two other areas that we regard as in the assessments. So in general, moving forward, one of the things that may impact the, the brain's ability to smooth the pathway from the processing to long-term and short-term memory is pruning. And in an article uh, or in a research done by neuroscientists at Columbia University Medical Center, 
on August 21st, 2014. Children and adolescents with autism were found to have a surplus of synapses in the brain. And this excess was due to a slowdown in the normal brain pruning process. So essentially, they're saying that they have extrasensory nerve endings that may likely related that are related to their diagnosis of autism in that the, the children with autism have these extrasensory developments of neural endings, sensory. And part of the pruning process, it is thought believed to be, and it's still theory, is that it develops, it helps maintain the pathways, the developed pathways. So if one is constantly playing the piano, the pruning will be around the action that was inserted by the practice of playing the piano. When the pruning is not going on in a robust way, then the sensory are picking up, not only are they picking up data, but when data is sent, they may not be sent on a smooth pathway, the same as what we might consider the internet. So instead of bouncing straight from Seattle to New York, it may go to Russia, Africa, and then over to Brazil and then back up. And in that time, data may be lost, data may be uh, interfered with other bits of data, and we soon may find ourselves with disorganized bits of data coming from point A to point B to create a reaction. So in this sense, their idea is that with pruning, it helps maintain pathways that have been practiced and that have been well-worn with use. So when we are doing any repetitive task, that establishes a pathway from point A to point B. When there are multiple pathways and multiple areas in which the neurons electrical voltage can travel sending the information, then what is thought to happen is either the loss of information or a series of unorganized distracted information. This is part of this idea and theory is attributed to at the end of this podcast to the solution. Again, we are establishing the functioning, cognitive functioning, and the research behind the solution. In every individual, as we had discussed at the very beginning of our show, diversity, the brain is a living organ with a living human, and it is evolving in the same way we have for millions of years. It is difficult for us to see that evolution at the slow pace because it adapts to its environment. It is forced to adapt to achieve the end, means to an end in a slow pace of biological reproduction, which can take generations. And changing environments may or may not be impacting the genetic expression. Genetic expression is different than genetic disposition. So in some regards, genetic disposition has very less flexibility than genetic expression. Genetic expression means there's a variable within that gene to react to the environment from our withstanding very cold weather to very hot weather. So an example, our cells in very hot weather are able to generate water, which protects us from overheating. In very cold, their ability to close off blood cells, blood vessels, and keep the main source of body heat internal. That comes from a variation. And some individuals are able to have a greater variation and some less. And in this case, the same is true for the brain. So it is important to keep in mind throughout these podcasts 
that the brain is a divergent and evolving organ that has genetic express flexibility of genetic expression to keep up with our demands. So an example I often give when discussing uh, students with ADHD, I would say it is my opinion that ADHD is really normal. And we will discuss that in the physiological reaction. ADHD is really normal because that is the quick turnover of immediate response to immediate problems, which is more likely to have been in the million years of our evolution than the last hundred years. We were in the wild, we were in the open, we had war, we had pestilence, we had many conditions, all the while with limited, with limited ability to choose for ourselves in that moment. So ADHD is most likely a very, was most likely a very beneficial way of, for the brain to function and react to its environment. Now with our very stable community, very stable social structure with our requirements, our institutional demands that we remain in a closed room for eight hours, whether it's an office, whether it's a classroom, this is, my opinion, much more likely to be abnormal until recently. So we have asked, our society has put a demand on the genes, our brain, that they shift from staying alive in a wild environment to focusing on memory and problem solving and responding to required tasks in a closed environment for eight or more hours a day. That is an example of a change in demands that we have been discussing on the adaptation of divergent brain functioning. So I mentioned previously that autism spectrum with the extra synapses, potentially, that research has indicated is a form in which the brain function finds useful in many regards as it might bipolar in a different adaptive demand. And we will at some time in the near future in our other podcasts discuss those demands and the culture that has been developed in a, uh, by humans to adapt to, to help them adapt to their social standings and improve carrying capacity. But right now we, we'll keep on. So we're looking at, we have looked at pruning as an important example of brain adaptation, brain functioning divergency, and the outcome of what that means for ex institutional expectations. And while we're not single, singling out any individual, we're rather describing the whole concept of what is happening as uh, the environment changes and the brain is adapting and the social consequences. So now we will move on to the physiological response. This is important, uh, especially in regards to problem solving or why there's a need to problem solve in the way that we have made clear before, again, in our previous podcast, problem solving through function, cognitive function. So if you solve if you solve the mind's issues, behavior follows, has been our motto. So for a real brief moment, let us just review what that means on a physiological scale. 
Because the physio physiological scale is the background for which we will describe why we want to describe pain as part of the outcome of increased anxiety and stress. So the primary emotions have been arguably noted as anger, fear, pleasure, sadness, and disgust. Uh, emotions can be conceptualized in terms of their function and adaptive significance. That is pretty much what we've taken for granted. In the, in the action of the emotion, there is basic, there is a basic feedback between the cortex, the limbic system, which is the back, what we consider the reptilian mind and the response uh, portion of the brain and the brain stem automatic, which is what drives the motor uh, when things are done automatically. And with that, we have the not so well known serotonin uh, dopamine systems that regulate how we feel and the chemical basis for between the neuron synapses. This is important as the physiological reactions are now developed from those systems. And this is stems from, this stems from the, what we would call the role of the cardiocotropin releasing hormone, CRH, systems in fear and anxiety. So there's an evidence, research evidence suggests that the extra hypothalamic cardiocotropin releasing hormone, CRH systems, play a role in the onset of fear and anxiety. And we will get back to that in a minute. But the important part here not the long and somewhat difficult names that we are discussing. The important part is the connection between what we were discussing as the cognitive function, the space and the processing, and that there is an actual physiological response to those feedback loops that create that are not only both creating anxiety and stress, but in having created that, then feeds itself back and can increase the physiological responses, such as increase in blood pressure. And an increase in blood pressure can increase anxiety, the reactions of anxiety and fear. So there are a number of incredible feedback loops that we will likely be able to see and associated with behaviors. But just as a reminder in this incredible feedback loop between these cortex, the limbic system, brainstem, the serotonin, the dopamine, the neurons, the neural pathways, then there's the general questions of nurture versus nature that we have touched on, uh, genetic predisposition, predisposition, biologically prepared, and so on. Rather than turn this into a neurological class on anatomy class, I am just touching base to remind our audience that it is important in understanding when we get to solutions and problem solving, why these were important, because we go back to the foundation of processing and how that is the integral part that I believe to the basis of what sets off in motion our behaviors. So I, while it has been woefully unclear, perhaps in description of neurological anatomy, I would hope that our audience can at any time go online and review that for themselves.
and rather that this is a connection to moving on in our problem-solving, uh, seeking problem-solving solutions as a reminder of the value of connecting the dots through what we are really trying to set up, which is the bottom basement in which to build our society uh, uh, solutions. And moving on, we are now at the point in which we, I feel we can describe why and what pain is when we discuss anxiety and stress. Anxiety and stress, the brain, now we are moving into theoretical and uncharted uh, areas of neurological um, discussion in that pain is often reserved for the physical out physicality of a pain. Emotional pain has been described, but it's clear that there are associations with development, discipline, and growing up. In other words, we often look as children to say, if they are in pain, emotional pain, it's because they are growing up. If we are in emotional pain, it's because we are not mature and so on. So it is important, I believe, to segregate what we feel is a develop, emotional developmental milestone in expectation and the pain that is associated with adverse behavioral responses. And while they may similarly be connected in that one reaches a milestone, it is the recognition of what is happening today that is different than 100 years ago. What is happening today when we have a divergence of expect and an expectation, an institutional expectation, and additional information that we may not have had 100 years ago? And what are those demands on our genetic expression of our mind's ability to cope with that. I would suggest that it's different and that perhaps it is a greater complexity than what it used to be 100 years ago or 200. So in the, what we consider anxiety and stress, the idea is, is that when we are filled with the data, and now we've gone back to the beginning in that it's a finite space, as individuals, we are facing emotional data, emotional, um, we're facing emotional issues that are competing, possibly, depending on our vulnerabilities, our susceptibilities, and our abilities to process. We are associated, we have more, un, perhaps, more issues with either both pruning issues or that may lead to additional data that is unorganized or just additional data. Now it is competing with the standard emotional data that we expect to be assimilated and developed in a mature way. And when this does not happen, and we are led to believe that there's a immature or uh, undeveloped emotional development and the students or children have not reached their milestones. This may or may not be the case. It may or may not be physical. It may or may not be something that is in our change in our environment. But in any case, the issue is we're dealing with a physical manifestation of a limited space that is competing with itself and the data that's coming in. No matter the cause or the ability, it's still the same issue of space, data, and processing. So in any case, when a child or a person or an individual adult is overwhelmed, it may be because it's competing with other additional data and it does not have the time nor the space to effectively, then there is, as we've mentioned before, likely a decrease in cognitive functioning and a basic lack decrease in function. This can be as getting out of bed, going to work. Uh, this is not including 
what may later develop to be poor immune system responses, and on and so on. In this case, we're discussing only cognitive functioning and the impact that anxiety and stress from the brain struggle to process the information. So whether it's whether it's an individual on a spectrum or a regular individual who's been overwhelmed at work, comes home, the kids are demanding, uh, the partner is demanding, there's extra demands, extra emotional duress for processing, extra information, and all of a sudden, that individual is feeling emotionally overwhelmed. Does this mean that they're emotionally undeveloped? Does this mean that they're automatically have a disorder? Does this mean it, it, it is not for us to really make that inference? We are simply looking at cause and effect, limited space, data, and that individual's response or lack of ability to respond, and the subsequent behaviors that follow. This is where we get to what happens when some of these issues are not able to respond. So the overwhelming feelings now become what we would consider pain, I would consider pain, or should be classified as pain. The labeled, the labeling the brain stress and anxiety as pain is to give weight to the potential of the adverse outcome of the reactions. So if we feel pain because we broke a leg, we give that weight because it means our leg is broken and we should get it fixed. It is identifying the importance of what that means and not giving it as something that should just be passed off, not in this day and age. Giving it weight as pain signifies the importance that behavior has, the development of behavior is based on what the brain feels and what it's demanding. A brain that is in anxiety and stress uh, condition should be responded to in the appropriate way, either to less the anxiety and stress, as well as to understand it, what may be some of the delivering treatment and solutions. So labeling is an important factor here. We are not calling it a disorder. We're not giving that person a disease. We're simply saying the weight of that condition should be labeled in regards to pain to give it weight to the solution and treat, treatment and solution. So we have, I have, and throughout this podcast, will refer, and as I have, to students who do have ADHD or do have depression, who do have feelings of overwhelmed anxiety or stress or on the spectrum and have trouble and lash out. When I go to them and I say, I recognize your pain. I see your pain. I understand why your pain. Here is why you have pain. Usually, nine out of ten times, the children and the students are so relieved that someone recognizes that they are in pain. Not the kind of pain we all think of as going to the dentist or broken leg, or, but the kind of pain that there seems to be no solution to, no recognition. If one says, I fell down and skinned my knee and I run to my dad, he says, well, get up, be a brave boy and go out there. Or if you're in a game and you get hit hard, get up, stand up and go out there. That's different. That is not the unrelenting, overwhelming feeling that the brain is sending signals to the body saying, I cannot function. I cannot process. We are in danger because I am not functioning. I cannot function by being overwhelmed. It is sending an alert 
to the child or student or person or individual, there is a problem. I am not functioning to my ultimate capacity because I am in pain and I cannot process. Here is my signal. Here is my elevated blood pressure. Here is my elevated cortisone. These are alerts. The interpretation of those alerts now becomes the issue. It is our interpretation, it's our students. If there is no awareness between all of those things that I've just mentioned, the physiological reaction is something that as a PhD student and in master's program, I learned about after 20 years, I thought I finally kind of understand to the point that I am able to discuss with my audience after 20 years. So why would I consider that a child might think and understand all of the complications surrounding their feelings? I don't expect them to. But what I can say to them, again, is that I understand why you're in pain. Those simple words are recognition that I understand and that as parents, we're going to work on a solution, not necessarily solve in a day, not overnight, but we are going to work because every child and everybody and every individual, when their brain sends out alerts, whether they recognize consciously or not, they are being, their behavior is following some form of way of compensating for that problem, for that alert, for that pain. If you have a broken leg, you limp and go to the doctor, you may favor that leg. If you hurt it, you may lay down. If it's your back, you're not going to get out of bed for a day. With the pain that we have now labeled in the brain, it is much, we do not have a system in which we say, okay, you can now lay down and we'll let you process it. Well, in some ways we have. Uh, there are behavioral uh, timeouts is one way of allowing processing to occur. Um, but to associate that with the physiological and aware and keep that, give that awareness to a child is a completely another story. So a child seeks out an explanation and a rationale for its own. And that usually involves peers. It involves their own idea of who's at fault. Who's at fault is their determination through the data they receive. The data they receive is determined through their sensory vision, hearing are the primary, what they see, what they hear, monkey see, monkey do. These are the things that they understand where pain comes from. But that's not necessarily what's happening when with emotional, being emotionally overwhelmed. So we are surprised when a child lashes out in class, an autistic child or a child who's emotionally overwhelmed or does violence, as we've spoke at the first podcast, the imminent violence, such as gun violence by children or any violence, we are probably looking at all of those things that have accumulated associated with the lack and inability to process their emotional feelings, their emotional issues that are competing with other data and are not getting properly processed. Behavior follows function. When the child, student, or adult understands that the brain is sending them an alert, it's not through gauges. It's not through notes, texts, and messages, and telephone calls, and English. It's through complicated physiological reaction in which the behavioral response is visual and hearing and a rationale of the thinking mind. In other words, I feel bad. I see you. It must be you that made me feel bad. And obviously the younger, less emotionally developed or less aware an individual is, the more the likelihood of associating what they see and what they hear with how they feel is likely to be much closer. So we see a lot of temper tantrums turn into violence, emotional uh, inability to identify what is making them feel that way or determination 
to control their environment through their behavior to get what they want, immediate gratification. Through a lack of awareness of why they feel the way they do. So we have come around, in my mind, from a place of processing the foundation of which the variable ways in which processing can be bound up into an unorganized continuum in which, for many different reasons, of an individual's genetic predisposition and genetic uh, in a, uh, flexibility of expression. So behavior follows function. So given that an individual is overwhelmed, their behavior now that they are alerted to overwhelming feelings and the brain's inability to function, make decisions, we might see a couple of important, uh, what we would recognize behaviors. Uh, frustration, and depending on the discipline and background of the individual and the uh, ability to um, understand why they feel the way they do, they may lash out in various ways may lash out physically, may lash out, may uh, be part of depression cycle in which they um, re recede from social. Uh, there are so many different ways that maladaptive behaviors will likely follow when given a rationale of their feelings associated with inability of optimization of their brain functioning. So now we come to some of the ultimate things that, uh, including uh, some of the reasons that we may find self-medicating behaviors. So if we're, children is older or they are given ideas into how to solve their own problems as an adult or an individual, if they're not going to a doctor or they talk to their peers, now they are considering how to solve their own problems because now their parents or adults are not, in their mind, solving their pain. So they don't know how, first, the description that it is pain. Secondly, they're not hearing how to solve that pain because it's about processing and who can help with that on the mind's issue. We're not brain surgeons to go in and fix as parents their issues and and put in an extra chip. But there is something that we're going to discuss in a moment. But first I wanna to get to a central key result, that's self-medication. So if one does not have access to a doctor, or does not consider that there is pain, and how would they explain that to a doctor? They're not likely to think about pain as a mental health or that there is something going on and if they normally have not been explained because they're not in special ed or they haven't been tested or evaluated. They may not even be described that way because that's simply about eligibility. Then what are they to do? So they look for their own solutions and their own solution is self-medication. So there's plenty to go around. Alcohol, uh, short-term immediate gratification of the brain will induce addiction, if not biological addiction to genetic predisposition of certain chemicals. Uh, but in seeking them, the brain will ask or the alert the individual that it needs something to help with the anxiety and stress created by the lack of processing ability and optimized processing ability due to being overwhelmed. So self-medication. I am suggesting that in many areas of the country, what we consider opioids, alcohol, pot, these are self-seeking, self-medicating, seeking behaviors. And the functional, cognitive functioning purpose behind that is from the brain seeking relief from pain. So what can we do? What can we do? This is why I have developed the program, Emotional Budgeting. Go to my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com. You may, I have consultation. 
to better help understand, and we will discuss this in our podcast moving forward, we are seeking to support the brain to process information. Essentially, in our program, it's about emotional relationships, emotional processing, so that but with the brain, it has been found through uh, use of this process that the brain, not the person necessarily, the subconscious part of the brain, recognizes when it's able to file, and it is able to file the data that we consider uh, in many cases unorganized into an organized fashion in the same way that we might think of finances. So we have a spreadsheet for finances and that helps us understand a solution. And in this way, we do the same for emotions. Go to our site, you'll see some information there in regards to how this program allows the individual, that allows the individual supports the brain, the same as we might think of brain training, help the brain file away into the long and short-term memory away from the processing area. File it out, file it into its organized, into organized data so that it's not part of the processing. And in doing so, the brain recognizes that it's a solution to lowering the processing and the stress and anxiety is re reduced in a general basis. Because the brain recognizes that the information is getting filed, it's getting organized. And when you go to look back at what a possible emotional overwhelming feeling is, you're able to identify, identify it by line item as we would a financial spreadsheet. That is a, the essence of the program in a nutshell. It supports the brain. One simply is transferring data through another method from one part of the brain to the other in an organized fashion so that the brain will then recognize it recognizes what is going on and how the information is getting organized. And it's a relief to the stress and anxiety, to lowering the physiological response, which then lowers the anxiety and stress uh, action. This is all based on what we started out from the beginning of our podcast today on how it's connected from the beginning to the end of and how that solution is arrived at. And the success has been no less than 100%, and there is no, there is no possible form of harm because it is supporting the brain's mind in training new synaptic ways to file and organize emotional data that is competing with expected functioning tasks in all of us in this day and age of overwhelming data from every source across an individual's different functioning abilities. That is the foundation of which we are discussing our podcasts, each and every one, and how we begin to build from the bottom up instead of trying to rationalize from the top down as we might as a child, when we feel pain, we want to find, not only do we want to find a solution, we want to explain a reason for it. But how we are making that up, if we do not understand how the brain functions and why it sends the signals out that it does. And that is the end of our podcast day. My next podcast will lead to a discussion of special education uh, that will involve alternative education, implications of change, our perception of disabilities, and supportive responses. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com. For parents and caregivers, individuals, and educators, copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and on paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul from Bataro.
Consultations are available through EmotionalBudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time.